Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Very happy to be with you today and thank you for tuning in with us. We are studying the book of Isaiah and uh, we have wonderful thoughts coming up from the book of Isaiah. Today it's a very interesting study about comfort my people and we are all looking forward to this uh, Bible study to learn more how God comfort his people and how can we comfort others. I would like to introduce the panel for today, and I will welcome Len. Good to have you with us, Len. Thank you, Nick, and hello, listeners. Joe, thank you for joining us also from down south. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be here. Now, just to mention to our listeners, we are from Adelaide, producing this program, and uh, a little bit more northeast, um, we are here uh, with Lija. Thank you, Lija, for uh, joining us too. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a pleasure for me. Thank you. Going a little bit more up north, I would like to welcome um, Helen. Thank you, Nick. It's a, a great delight to be here to study, to open God's word. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Now, Helen, also, uh, you are our facilitator for today, and thank you for putting together this Bible study. Uh, with no further comments, uh, I would like to just hand it over to you, Helen. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate the panel, and uh, there are some missing today and for different reasons, and I know God will bless them as well. The entire book of Isaiah is full of mixed messages, and we have seen that as we've been studying. It's about judgment and the news of salvation. However, the first part of Isaiah is mainly concerned with the message of God's judgment towards Judah. The second major part of this book contains God's message of comfort for his people. And that's where we're going today. Isaiah 40, which we will look at, comes directly after the first part, serves as an introductory section to the chapters that will follow. But before we go any further, Nick, would you please pray for us? Almighty God, Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord, to praise your name, to honor you and to thank you for who you are, the great almighty God, creator and sustainer of all things. We have your word provided, Lord, for us all, and how good it is to open the Bible and to learn from you more, to be prepared for the things which we face day by day. Help us, Lord, to be intentional in studying your word and to know your will. I pray that you'll be with us, with every member of the panel today, to share from the gospel and with all our listeners that they may be enriched and blessed today through this Bible study. I prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, Nick. You know, World War II officially ended in Europe on May 7, 1945, not long before I was born. Britain's Ministry of Information announced that the next day, Tuesday, May 8, would be a public holiday called Victory in Europe Day, which was come to be known, has come to be known as VE Day. After years of blood, toil, tears and sweat, pent-up emotions exploded in rejoicing. Some of you might have even seen clips about it. Millions of people turned out to celebrate in the streets of Great Britain, where tens of thousands in London filled Trafalgar Square and along the Mall to Buckingham Palace. I can remember my parents speaking about this, and we were in Britain at the time, and I remember the words, it is over. Well, Isaiah 40 celebrates the end of another period of suffering. The message of the Lord starts with one of the most reassuring and soothing messages in the Bible. So I'm going to ask, Joe, would you read Isaiah 40, 1 and 2 for us and tell us whether God was unjust in giving the people of Jerusalem double punishment for their sins. Thank you. Isaiah 40, 1 and 2. 
Yes, Isaiah 41 and 2 reads, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And you ask the question, was God unjust in giving the people of Jerusalem a double punishment? Well, we know that they were punished more than God had intended because in other portions of scripture, God had remonstrated with the powers and said, you know, you have done what you were supposed to do, but you have gone beyond all bounds. Um, in Isaiah 14, verse 6, it gives us an idea. It says, it struck the peoples in anger. This is how Babylon dealt with, um, and Assyria for that matter, with the nations around them. It struck the peoples in anger with unceasing blows. It subdued the nations in rage. So we have a fury that only Satan can inspire to attack God's people. Now, yes, they were deserving of punishment, but there are other portions of scripture that says that um, in Ezra, that Ezra verse 9, sorry, chapter 9, verse 13, it says, now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. There was no doubt that they knew. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve. For you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. So we have here that they got less than they actually felt they deserved, that God also showed mercy. And often in scripture, when it says double, it doesn't often mean like double, you know, twice as much as they deserve. But it is, it talks about in excess of. Yes, I think God, going back to the original questions, he wasn't unjust. In fact, the people thought he was fair. In fact, they thought he was merciful, that they had deserved far more. Um, so that's just, you know, one short answer. Thank you, Joe. Much appreciated. Lynn, you wanted to say something? Yes, it's very nice to read after all these horrible things that have been happening that um, this chapter starts out with comfort. And I was thinking a little bit about disciplining children. Sometimes when our children are naughty, we have to punish them. If we just let them get away with it, well, they haven't learned very much. And I can think of specific incidents where our children had to be punished, but then we reassured them that we didn't punish them because we hated them. We punished them because we loved them. And this is a reassurance of God's love to this recalcitrant nation that we've been talking about, Judah. Thank you, Len. Joe, you wanted to add? Yes. Often the modern version, of modern meaning of comfort is a little different to, I think, what the Hebrew word intended, um, nahamu. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. But it means to strengthen to encourage, to instill a sense of security. It's from the old English, come fort, to fortify. So rather than, I guess it's a combination of what it's become and what it had been um, intended originally, perhaps. It's a blend of those two. Thank you, Joe. That was interesting. Appreciate that. Len, maybe you could explain why these people needed comfort. Well, they say that disasters come in threes like somebody might fall over and hurt themselves and, and then they might get a big bill in the post they never expected and maybe something else. This is all hypothetical. But this is what actually happened to the Judahites. They were first punished 
by the Assyrians, and we dealt with that in a previous program. And then they were punished by the Babylonians. The Babylonians sacked the city of Jerusalem and took the people captive. Uh, They were taken to Babylon to be slaves. But there is mention, although not specified, which other nation also attacked Judah. It may very possibly be the Egyptians. So here they were, instead of living in peace, were being attacked time after time, and this was part of God's punishment, where he used other nations to punish the people who should have been faithful to him but weren't. So disasters come in threes, and they certainly got it. And isn't it terrible if you if you do believe everything comes in threes, you're just waiting for the third one to happen, and that's normally when you trip over or do something silly, isn't it? <laughs> okay. There was a prediction in Isaiah 14, verse 3, and um, I, I think we'd like to look back at that. God had predicted something. Lydia? Uh, yes, in Isaiah uh, chapter 14, verse 3, God predicts, and it says, on the day... The Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So God is promising to his people that their suffering is not going to be on a long term, but it's going to be on a limited period of time. I just want to think about that promise that you just um, shared with us. A promise that way back before the chapter that we're in now, if they had remembered, would have them encouraged them, wouldn't it? And we too have a promise that we won't always have suffering on this earth. Have we not? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And isn't that something we should be rejoicing? They should have been rejoicing that even through all those those terrible things, the punishments, they had this promise to, to take them through. And it was a great promise. So Isaiah then goes on to speak about God's presence, his word, and also speaks about road work of all things. So let's have a look at Isaiah 43 to 8. And um, yes, Nick, would you share and explain the meaning of this passage, please? And also about the scenario of the road preparation. You know, what does that represent? Yes, um, Helen, as you pointed out, uh, we, we probably could even look from Isaiah 40, from verse 1 to verse 8, you know, in this uh, context. Uh, and we mentioned about uh, how God uh, speaks out and says, you know, to comfort my people. We talked about the, the double portion and uh, that was explained. But coming to this, prepare my way, the road work, to say so, uh, it says here, you know, the any valley to be lifted up, you know, every hill to be straightened up, you know, and all those things. A thought came into my mind. Israel, God's people, they were always to be the way or a way to bring salvation to other nations, to all other people around. Now, if you don't have a good infrastructure, then people cannot come and see your beauties, if you like, even from a touristic point of view. And I know that because we struggle that back home where we, we, ha- we have a very beautiful country. Many people said in Europe that Romania should be uh, like US, uh, Switzerland. Very beautiful country, but infrastructure was not very good. And then when you start to build on infrastructure, you have a lot of benefits. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world, very well prepared. But what happened? Israel got trapped 
into the the life of the nations surrounding them. They were doing pretty much the same like other uh, people were doing and looking at the successes or other other things there. Instead of understanding their particular call from God to be the light of the world. And we fall into this uh, category today. Everyone like us who like to share the good news, the Bible, we are road workers, to say so, preparing the way. And uh, we are going to maybe expand a little bit more uh, further down our study how important it is to prepare the way. Thank you very much, Nick. Lydia and then Lynn, I see hands up. Thanks. Okay, I would like to add here that this promise from God that comes to to his people is to, is going to be proclaimed so it means it comes this proclaim comes from the word speak so uh, it means you have to call out you have to call on you have to shout for everybody to hear and uh, again in, in verse 3 it says a voice of one calling again so it's from the same verb I would like also to read verse 3. It says, A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. So what it means in the desert, in the wilderness, as I understand here, that in their spiritual desert of the wilderness of their situation, you, uh, you have to prepare the way for the Lord. So not just a path, a small, narrow one, but a highway for the Lord. Mm. Excellent. Thank you so much, Lydia. Len, you wanted to say something? After the death of King George VI, his older daughter, Elizabeth, became queen. And, of course, Australia was part of the British Commonwealth of Nations, and I was a small boy. And Elizabeth came out here to Australia. And children in school at that time were taken to um, the East Park lands. And there were thousands and thousands of children there. And I was one of them waving little flags. And Queen Elizabeth rode past in a, in a Land Rover, as it turned out. I know the man who actually now owns that Land Rover, but that's a side point. They wanted to give her a little tour of the state and uh, she was to be taken up to Angerston in the Barossa Valley and was to be driven through Cainton, back through Mount Pleasant, back through the Adelaide Hills. Well, back then from Angerston through to Sedan and Mount Pleasant, it was only a dirt road. Guess what? Before she came, they bitumized the road. They prepared the way for her. But it also means more than that. And I think this has been covered a different way, but I'd just like to say this. Prepare the way for the Lord means to provide an access for you to get to him and him to get to you. And in view of the fact, and particularly with relation to what Ledger just said, it's, it's a message. It's a message that God is available to his people, and people are available and can get to God. God is not remote. Len, that was excellent. Thank you so much. Yes, Joe. Also, if we bring it down to a very personal level, I think 
in preparation for God, we need to look at our own lives and, you know, the rough edges, the low points, the craggy areas, the deserted areas that we don't look at very often, that we need to address some of these areas in our own lives in order to facilitate God's presence in our lives. And these days we can be busy with all sorts of things and starting right from here that we crowd out and that we have weeds growing everywhere. Whereas as Lynn so beautifully put it, in preparation for our God, we need to make clear the road, clear all the rubbish away, make it special and give him um, access to our hearts. And he will help us do that because we can't do all that on our own. He will help us clear all the rubbish and allow him free access to our lives and, um, you know, our sphere of influence. Amen. Thank you so much. Yes. Quickly, Lydia. Uh, I found verse four very interesting. And it says here, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places a plain. So that's very interesting. So it means the mountain, the the hills will be on its way, you know. So everything have, has to be leveled up. So I'm thinking in our lives are there very high mountains and hills and uh, uh, rugged places, you know. So we have to make it smooth for the Lord's, Lord's highway into our hearts. And, and just on that one, to continue that idea, I was thinking on the same principle. We may have mountains of problems in our life. And mm-hmm. as we're going through today, you know, in this time we, we uh, produce this program, there are lots of mountains in our lives. And those mountains need needs to be flattened out. Now, that, that could be also a lots of deep valleys of depression, discouragement, and all those things. Again, we need to lift up our spirits. We need to trust in the Lord. And you see, this has a very solid application on our spiritual journey. Now, we can understand the, all of those things, and as Len speak about, you know, the preparation for the queen and so on and so forth. But in the end, it's up to where we are as individuals. If we are not prepared, we cannot benefit of the blessings which God provided for us. Thank you, Nick. Yes, that was following on from what um, Joe shared with us. Well, great answers. I think this is going to be a great study. Thank you, everybody. Who was the one that prepared the way in the wilderness for the coming Messiah? The first one was John the Baptist. That's right, John the Baptist. And the Messiah was the king. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And another messenger was predicted also to prepare the way of the Lord before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Who was that? Uh, Simeon uh, and Anna, I would like to mention uh, the prophetess Anna. She was the first one to see uh, the baby. And uh, she was an, an old elderly person, but she glorified uh, Lord, uh, the Lord and she spoke loud to all the people around her. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, she prepared the way of, of Jesus. 
right? Elijah was the one too that I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, and we need to look at that from the fact that although Elijah won't come again um, per se to prepare the way, but we need the spirit of Elijah. Now there is a group of people, and in Revelation 14, 6 to 12, it talks about this particular people and what they God had entrusted to them. Len, can you share that with us, please? Yes, I'd love to. Elijah is actually used as a metaphorical term to describe a messenger. And John the Baptist could be considered an Elijah. But the Elijah in the world's latter times, I believe, is not just an individual. I believe it's a movement. And I think we are part of this movement in bringing to the world the fact that Jesus is coming again. And we need to get ready. And in Revelation 14, uh, these three messages that must go to the world before Jesus comes. I'll briefly summarize. Revelation 14, 7, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment is come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. Well, recently I was looking at some statistics about people or religious groups, this uh, survey was done in the US, religious groups who accept that God is the creator of the world. You would be surprised how few. In fact, overall in America, it's about 50-50. Those who believe that God was the creator and those who believe that evolution happened. The second one is Babylon is fallen. I won't go into that too much. And then it talks about the consequences of false worship and being part of false worship. Listeners, this might sound a little bit strange, but I believe that we are part of this movement to bring this knowledge to your minds to prepare yourself because Jesus is coming soon. He's given us signs. By observing the signs, and I think they're pretty evident these days, we're still in the grip of COVID-19 and there are extreme weather conditions and whatnot. Um, As far as this is concerned, we are part of the movement helping you to prepare for the return of Jesus and of the end of the world. I just want to add on that, uh, if I may, uh, Helen, because we use the Len used the word uh, we, and I would like to say you, listener, can be part of that movement. Everyone who study and preach and teach the three angels message, which is the present truth, is part of that movement. We are not exclusivists here. We read a bit earlier and mentioned about Simon and uh, Anna. We are not uh, here to say only men or only women. We are all in yes. together. This message is not given only to the priests or to the monks or to the gurus. This is given to everyone. And we are called to be road workers. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Nick, for that. It's interesting what you say because we've all been given what we call the Great Commission. And we're going to go on with Isaiah 49 in a moment. But before we do, I'd like to... Here, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, please, because there's some really good words in here. Jo? Uh, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you, Joe. Perhaps you'd like to just pull out those action words that we're to do. Oh, that's full of action words like <laughs> go, baptize, um, teach, obey, and of course the reassurance that God is with us even unto the end of the age. Um, yeah, very yeah. promising. Yeah, very Thank beautiful you. promises. So He's not sending us out without His power, is He? Okay, oh. well let's look at something similar in Isaiah forty verse nine, and I'll get Lydia if you wouldn't mind reading that Isaiah forty nine, and then I'd like to break it down for us also. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a mountain, on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Wow. If we thank you so much. Did you want to add to that? Is just the climax of the uh, of the promise because uh, it, it says here is your God. So uh, lift up your eyes, open your eyes, lift up your head, and see that God is here. Here is your God. Yeah, thank you. Yes, Lynn. So the question is, why go up on a high mountain? Yeah, I think the reason is to be seen and to be heard. Amen. You know, you. If you want to um, call out to a group of people, you need to be seen and you need to be heard. And also, Len, I would like to add to that is to stand out. You know, when you present a message, you know, there are uh, different messages. People can present their own uh, understanding. But the message you share needs to really stand out. It needs to be... a uh, lofty you know you know uh, message i mean to not just uh, just how to say to do something to say that yes i did my part i did something you need to really be standing out from the confusion you mentioned a bit earlier len come out of babylon you know we live in the time of confusion and humanity was facing all through the way this this confusion and God is calling again, stand out, stand mm. out. I have um, Joe and I have Len. Joe, please. It's ironic that um, it says, O Zion, get thee up into a high mountain because Jerusalem was elevated. It was actually elevated. It was on Mount Zion. And so it's saying, you know, if you can get any higher, you know, call out these great news. There's a certain exuberance about this text. There's a rejoicing. There's, you know, how do you put a lid on so much excitement and so much um, wonder and happiness and joy that just um, radiates from this text? Yeah, good point, Lynn. I would like to suggest that the message is a high mountain message. It's a big message, the message being that God is not happy to leave people to wallow in sin and error. He, he wants to lift people up to live on a higher plane, so to speak. So not only is the message to be seen and heard and proclaimed as if from a high mountain, 
but it's a high mountain message as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Lydia. I would like to um, to mention that I remember when God talked to Moses many times, he called him up on a high mountain. Uh, when uh, other prophets in, in the Old Testament uh, received a message from God, they were called up on a high mountain. So God gives good news, good p- promises and messages up on a high mountain. I had a dream when I was called on a, up on a high mountain. <laughs> good on you. Um, yeah, who was bringing the good news and to whom? Uh, Isaiah brings the good news to the people, to the uh, people of Judah. Okay. And um, they were to go, I think we've mentioned this, but Len, did you want to enlarge on that? Jerusalem was to go where to bring these good tidings? All right. Well, it's very interesting how some of the modern translations differ. And um, Isaiah 40, verse 9, I have a Bible here which I would show you, except it's radio and you can't see it. But it has four versions, all parallel, so you can read each version uh, alongside the other. Now, it's interesting that two of these versions say that the message, the good tidings were to go to Jerusalem or Zion. Zion and the name Jerusalem are interchangeable. And the other two versions say they are to go out from Jerusalem. So who's correct? Well, I would like to suggest that uh, both, both interpretations are right because Jerusalem is representative of God's people and God's people are to go out and share the good tidings of salvation through Jesus Christ. But also... That message has to go into God's people first. So the message goes both to and from Jerusalem, God's people. I just want to say something here. You know, there's a there's a fairly widespread belief in many of the evangelical churches that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The problem is, if that's rebuilt, um, it's like denying the uh, sacrifice of Christ for our sins because if you build a temple back in Jerusalem, you'll, the natural thing is to slay animals for the forgiveness of sins. That's a false message. And some people claim, reading from Romans chapter Uh, 11.26, it says, all Israel will be saved. Well, I'd like to just share a little bit here, and I think this is very important. It's kind of a little bit peripheral to our study, but I think it's very important because the Apostle Paul explains quite well in Romans 9, verses 6 and 8, that God's people are not necessarily Jewish. Because he says, and I want to read these two texts to you, Romans 9, verses 6 and 8. Just turning it up now. Verse 6. For it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Which is saying, it's not just people who can claim Jewish descent are Israel. So this text about all Israel being saved 
must be applied in a wider context. And going down to verse 8, in other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And who's the children of the promise? Well, I'd like to say that it's Christians who've accepted the promise of Christ's return or for Christ's first coming and his second coming. So the message was to go into Jerusalem or into God's people and to then go out God's people. You mentioned that, Len, and uh, I agree with what you're saying. And just to clarify that Israel means victorious. You fought with God and you became victorious. Now, everyone who's victorious, it's Israel. It's part of Israel. You may be descendant of Abraham, but not being victorious. I would like to add to, to this. So Isaiah chapter 40, it's comfort for God's people. And when God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Of course, in, in, the, in that period of time, God put an end to his people's trials and suffering. But the expression, my people, uh, is an indicator of the covenant relationship between God and his people. So God is faithful to his covenant duties of initiating, providing, and forgiveness to his people. Hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's certainly what you three have said have brought comfort to a lot of people, I'm sure. Um, thank you, Len, for bringing that section out. Um, Joe, I just want to swing back to you for a moment. You brought out action words in the Great Commission. Is there any action words in this commission here, Isaiah 49, which is also a Great Commission? Well, it tells us, uh, get thee up. So, we, you know, get up. Mm-hmm. Go get up and lift up your voice with strength. And, again, lift up and don't be afraid. And behold, your God. So, the, you know, as we mentioned earlier, this is a, an action text. Yeah. Um, lots of yeah. action words, yeah. Thank you, Joe. It doesn't mean just get up. It means that we need to bring something to the people, doesn't it? There's mm-hmm. another action word there, bring good time. Yeah, yeah, okay. So these are all things that we need to do, and we would call them evangelism. Yes, um, Len, before we go any further. Yes, well, uh, it depends what version you read, but I've listed the action words. It says bring and go and lift and say, or we could say draw it in, take it out, lift it up and proclaim this good message of, of comfort. Mm. Great words, and it means that we're not just going to sit in a pew or sit at home. God wants us to do something, doesn't he? Okay. Um, Nick, could you read Isaiah 40, 10 and 11, please, and notice the action words in verse 11. Sure, Helen. Again, I'm reading from uh, chapter 40, verse um, 10 and 11, and it says, yes. The sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, brings his reward with him. And he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close 
to, to his heart. He will gently lead the mothership with their young. I notice here, Helen, that he will. Yeah, he, he will. shall and he will. There's about four or five or even six times, I think he says it. And if you, do, if you have a doubt in your mind concerning your life, your journey, thinking that God is far away, God is not with you. He is and he will do everything what you need to do. You just need to ask him. Amen. So God isn't idle. He doesn't want us to be idle and he's not idle either, is he? He's certainly doing doing his part. Beautiful picture. You know, um, when I think of um, he will hold the lamb in his arms, you know, years ago in a choir we used to sing um, those very words and it really came home to me. Okay, so so far we've looked briefly at Isaiah 40, 1 to 11, and if we combine it with 12 to 31, we'll actually see here what the theme of God's mercy and power. It both are necessary to save his people, to save you and I. He wants to save his people. He wants to save us because he is merciful. He is able to save because he is powerful. So let's have a quick look. Isaiah 41 to 5. Um, where God will actually bring comfort and the coming of the Lord will deliver. But I'd like one word, and I'm going to use the panel here, one word that shows us about God's what. And, Joe, would you like to kick off with that, please? Okay. It says God will bring comfort. Again, God will bring comfort. And that emphasizes the word, if you like, compassion and mercy. Now, God's people, um, if we look in Lamentations, that's going a little off track. If anyone who would like to read it, Lamentations 1, there are a number of verses in there that sort of say no one to comfort her, none to comfort, um, for a comforter is far from me. And, of course, she weeps bitterly in the night. And this is the, this is the experience of God's people during their suffering. Now, if I might just say that um, it is from a position of power that mercy can be shown, um, there are some people that say, oh, mercy is for the weak, but the weak are never in a position to show mercy. So here we have God who has the upper hand. He is the one from a position of power, and he shows mercy to his people. He shows mercy to us, to all of humanity. Um, and so the message is comfort my people, strengthen my people, encourage them. I'm for them. I am coming to strengthen, to deliver, to enable them for whatever that is that we are facing. So it's, it's definitely God's, God's mercy amazing. coming through. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Joe. Um, Lydia, and um, I think Joe's covered a couple of those verses, but can you add in Isaiah 40, perhaps 6 to 8, God's glory, permanence versus human weakness, but in one word out of those um, shows us about God's what, and I know Joe's mentioned it already, but can you just share it from those verses, please? Yes, uh, I would like also to read only one verse to summarize. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here we can see God's eternal power. Absolutely. Thank you. Nick, Isaiah 49 to 11. That is the good news of deliverance. He was the shepherd of his people. In one word, can you show us about God's what? Yeah, we looked at that uh, passage uh, already and we uh, mentioned that uh, God takes care. 
of all our needs. I mean, he's a merciful, merciful God. We must not forget that. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. And Len, what about Isaiah 40, 12 to 26? Here we see what we would call the incomparable creator. But I want one word again too. But can you um, do something with that, please? I'll give you that word, but I won't give it straight away. No, that's fine. Because what we're talking about is comfort and the fact that God is able to comfort his people, to bring us good news, not just because he is merciful, but because he is powerful. After all, he is the creator. And I'll read a couple of verses from Isaiah 40. So verse 12, there's a question. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Now I'm going to jump over to verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in. I'd just like to relate this to the book of Job, where Job was questioning God about his mercy and probably about his power. And in chapter 38 of Job, and I really commend this to you listeners to read, chapter 38, 39 and 40 and 41, God just just describes himself to Job. God is able because he is powerful. He can provide mercy and he will provide mercy because he's able to. Yeah, look, I, I had my eyes shut when you first started reading parts of that, Len, and... Uh, at night, the last thing I do before I go to sleep is pull back my curtains and I look at the stars. And I just, that's just a part of the creation, but it just makes me stop and think how powerful is our God and yet how merciful he is. You know, the question is, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness can you compare him with? And, and Lydia, you might want to share Isaiah 40, 12 to 18, And let's have a look what that does show us about God. Here, the prophet Isaiah speaks pretty much the same as Job. So I'm going to read a little bit because it's beautiful. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains of the scales in the hills in a balance. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it taught that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, 
not eat animals in after burnt offerings, but I will, I will, I will emphasize verse 18. To whom then you will compare God? What image will you compare to him? So, uh, Isaiah is for Job. The answer goes without saying no one. So God is incomparable. But Isaiah picks up on his question and refers to the answer that many ancient people implies by their actions, which is that God is like an idol, but God is the eternal creator. He is the holy one, the only one, incomparable one. Right. Thank you so much. You know, it seems foolishness, doesn't it, about an idol? But, Joe, there's a, another section here in Isaiah 40, 19 to 20, and Isaiah 41, 29. Um, Isaiah tells us something here. So what, what is the problem? The problem is that they were creating idols for themselves, um, graven images, if you like. Um, verse 19 says, The workman melted the graven image and the goldsmith spread it over with gold and casteth silver chains. And those who can't afford gold, golden idols, it says that he that is impoverished chooses a tree that will not rot. So um, probably a hardwood. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman, someone who is a crafty and um, it basically graves an image out. And so we have... We have, this is what is happening. But the problem is that if we look also, I'll just refer us to Isaiah, to Jeremiah 3, verse 9. The bigger problem was that Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshipping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. So um, there are other portions of Scripture where it says, how, how have we offended you? You know, and they obviously didn't realize that this mattered that much. So this was a problem. It was their attitude as well. And so they were taking God's gifts that God had bestowed upon them, the treasures, the food that he had given them, and they presented it to idols, you know, mm. um, and that, that was a, a major problem. But I think the biggest problem was not so much what they did, was that they just took it so lightly, as it says in Jeremiah. They treated it all so lightly. It was just such a casual thing. They mm. thought that they could sit on the fence and do a bit of both. And does, I think Isaiah sums it up very well. Could you just read for us Isaiah forty-one twenty-nine, please? And behold, they are all vanity. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. If only yeah. Israel saw it for what it was. Mm, thank you. In my version, it says, see, they are all foolish, worthless things, all your idol as empty as the wind. Len, you wanted to comment? One of the problems that the people of Israel and the people of Judah did, as has already been mentioned, they took on some of the practices of the neighbouring countries and most of those neighbouring countries worshipped idols. Now, the ridiculousness of worshipping an idol has been pointed out in other parts of the Bible. For example, one place it says there's this tree, somebody cuts down a tree and uses some of the wood for firewood, but the other makes an idol and bows down to it and worships it. You know that idol worship is totally degrading. To worship something that has a lower status 
than yourself is degrading. God is pointing people trying to lift them up to worship him, uh, not because he's greedy or selfish, because he knows what man is. And man was never made to bow down and worship a stone or even a, a, a brass snake up on the pole like we previously mentioned. I think it was last week. Man needs to worship something higher to elevate rather than to worship something that's inanimate, which mm-hmm. basically degrades human beings. That is so true, Lynn. Um, thank you, Joe and Lynn, for sharing that. To worship an idol is to replace and therefore deny God's real presence, if you want to put it in one sentence. But I'd like to ask the panel very quickly, um, what kind of idolatry do we face as a church today? And does idolatry appear more subtle forms in the church today? And if so, how? Would somebody like to address that? I don't know about the church, but I'll just mention generally, and maybe somebody might like to refine what I say. I think a lot of people regard their higher learning as an idol because many of them claim that with their higher learning there is no God, but God is... um, higher than their higher learning. And I've seen it happen with uh, good children coming from Christian homes, go to university where there are atheistic professors and they convince the children that their line of thinking is right. Of course, evolution has become an idol and my wife and I were in Canada once and we had some time uh, between buses we were heading for Minneapolis and we went to a museum and evolution was idolized if you like hedonism health self-worship people's material possessions pleasure sport have become idols why because they replace God an idol in this sense is that which replaces God yeah now in the church Well, I'll let somebody else speak to that. Okay. Lydia, you've had your hand up. Uh, Len already mentioned whatever I want to say, but in our days we see very clear that humanity are worshipping selves, Uh hobbies, positions, money, and so on, just, yeah, Yeah. worshipping selves. That's something we need to be very careful of. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, sometimes we think that, as I referred to at the uh, text in Jeremiah, that God's people sometimes can trivialize things that may offend God deeply and not see, perceive the seriousness of, of yeah. what they are doing and what they're engaging in. And so it, it behoves us to actually reflect on our attitudes to worship and whether we trivialize, whether we take things casually, um, whether we uh, compromise to the point that we think it's okay, it's acceptable. Others think it's acceptable, but is highly offensive to God because we don't see it from God's perspective. And the ramifications and the flow-on effect and consequences of the choices uh, that we make now um, and the uh, the influence that we have on other people. So I think it, it's important that we do reflect everything, you know, that Lynn said I support, 
yeah. and sometimes we also need to take it on a really personal level and um, and see where we stand and where our particular idols may be and maybe we don't see them as idols because they're so we've trivialized them and think oh that's nothing that's nothing Mm -hmm. thank you joe very important and we need to think about that just before we close though i would like if we can so everybody please just share one text only one text uh, um of what brings comfort to you the most in scripture it's a group of texts john 14 verses 1 to 3 I won't quote because I know we're getting short of time. It is Jesus' promise that he is coming back again to receive those who are faithful. And that brings a lot of comfort to me. If Jesus was not coming back again and if there was no afterlife, I'm not sure whether I would be a Christian. Okay. That is a good text, though. It really is. Thank you, Len. Someone else got another text? I have so many uh, favorites in my in the Bible. Uh, That's I, really, I, I don't know which one to mention, ah. but I would like to say that the Lord keeps His promises. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. And one, that, one that comforts me is that, and we've read read it in Matthew, and there are many texts that say similar. It says that I am with you always. I'm ah. always with you, and. It's, it's, you know, we might be on the mountaintop, we might be in the valley, we might be experiencing stress, we might be experiencing depression or the heights of success, but God is with us. And sometimes we don't always feel his presence, but we need to believe that he is with us at all times. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I read my favourite author, Ellen White. She said, um, whether we choose him or not, we have a companion. And that gave me comfort for my son and my children. Nick, have you got a favourite text, a comfort one? Yes, uh, and uh, I may take the liberty to share two texts from uh, Psalm 37, and I encourage everyone to read this beautiful psalm. Uh, Verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you live safely in the land and prosper. And prosperity is not about uh, things to, you know, to have as many as you like, you know. Prosperity mm-hmm. is more than that. And in verse um, 7 says this, and I really like this. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about the evil people who prosper or freak about their wicked schemes. Wow, great. My Thank you for that. My favourite is Job 23.10, which says, He knoweth the way that I take, and when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And um, I'm glad that Job actually said that. Well, we need to conclude. Uh, our time has gone. But I'd just like to share a few words from Matthew Henry, not as many as I was going to, but I'd like to finish off by saying, um, The word of the Lord can do for us what flesh cannot The glad tidings of the coming of Christ were to be sent forth to the ends of the earth. Christ is the good shepherd. He shows tender tenderness for young care and he converts weak believers and those of a sorrowful spirit. May we know our shepherd's voice and follow him, proving ourselves his sheep. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Have you accepted, listener, and embraced his powerful and tender comfort as a gift? Is your hard labour? over. Lynn, would you close with prayer, please? 
Our dear Father in heaven, we recognize that we are kind of studying history. But these lessons that we learn from Isaiah have modern applications. We've learned how that if we're disobedient, we can expect things to go hard for us. But Lord, this week we have learned that you are a God of mercy, of grace, of power, and that you want us to associate with you. We pray that it will be our choice as as a panel and the choice of all those who are listening to this program today to choose to honour and serve you. There is no better way. And thank you, Lord, for the message that's reached us and the message that we're able to share today. We invite your blessings on everybody who's listening to this program And we do so in Jesus' marvellous and worthy name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, everyone, for uh, your input, for your participation today. And thank you for uh, all our listeners who are um, contacting us. And if you like to hear more about us, don't hesitate always to send us a message, um, send an email, whatever you like, uh, call us. We'll be more than happy to assist because we learned today that God is comforting his people. And while we've been comforted, we are called to serve others, to comfort others. And uh, we are called to be in the saving business with God. God is to save everyone, none that should perish, but all have everlasting life. I'll invite you for our next Bible study to serve and to save. Until then, may God richly bless you and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.